welcome to the 100th episode of Sports Crunch with D-Crom. I'm your host, David Cromelo. To commemorate this special occasion, we have decided to give you a glimpse inside the NFL scouting world. Scouts are the unsung heroes of NFL franchises. Behind every Super Bowl winning team, you will find the fingerprints of their scouts' tireless work. Our special guest, Greg Gabriel, spent 30 years in NFL scouting, where he helped lay the bricks of Super Bowl teams, including the 1987, 1991, and 2000 New York Giants, and the 2006 Chicago Bears. Today, Greg is a contributor to Pro Football Weekly, 670 The Score in Chicago, and buffalosportspage.com, where you can catch his coverage during football and NFL draft season. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this journey through the life and mind of an NFL scout with the one and only Greg Gabriel. Greg Gabriel, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. We appreciate you as well, Greg. And uh, give us an insight of a typical day in the life of an NFL scout while he's on the road evaluating prospects. Well, number one, it's a, it's a long day. It, it's changed now from the way it was when I started in the league. When I started in the league back in the early 80s, you know, you had a, everything was actually on, on film, not videotape and now digitized. Uh, so you had to go to the schools to be able to watch the tape. Um, I don't even want to get into what watching film was like on, on those old Kodak 16-millimeter projectors because that was tough work. Then it got into uh, videotape. Now it's digitized, but, you know, it's a long day. You're getting to school early, um, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. Uh, you're watching tape until they have meeting time set up with certain coaches and the, and the uh, support staff as far as the training staff, strength coaches, etc., so you can get some background on the players. And then uh, you have to usually be out of those rooms that they give you access to usually at around two o'clock depending on the school because they have meetings starting with their own players and then you know practice may start at three thirty four o'clock most places don't allow you to watch a full practice but you're getting in yeah, at least the first half of practice whatever you get to see them run around um see their athleticism uh their body types etc but uh, um and then you're on to the next school, so which which makes it difficult because you're, you know, on the road consecutive days for a long time, different hotel every day, different school every day. Um, you know, sometimes you can wake up and you don't even remember where the hell you're at uh, because you're you know you're changing hotels and schools every day. But uh, it's also a lot of fun, very rewarding. Um, basically, you're your own boss because you know there's nobody standing over you looking at you when you're doing your job you got to be self-motivated a self-starter if you want to be a good scout i completely agree with all of that greg and just an estimate when you were on the road how many miles did you travel per day on average and how many hours of sleep did you get per day on average uh, i you know i don't know if i ever thought about that i'd probably put in the fall when i was an area scout starting you know with the giants um maybe 20,000 miles I'd put on my car just in the fall. Um, I'd be flying all spring because I'd be going, you know, to pro days and stuff. But uh, uh, generally speaking, when I was, you know, with the Giants as an area scout, my, 
my car left home in August when we started going on the road. My car didn't get back home until after Thanksgiving. I would just, when I went home, I'd fl- you know leave my car wherever it was and just fly home. Um, you know, depending on who you work for, what your you know what your job title is. You know, if you're an over-the-top scout, you're not in the car a lot. You're uh, flying and then renting, uh, so that can depend. But uh, I know from days out on the road, there was five years in a row when I was with the Giants that I was on the road for better than 200 nights a year, and that included meeting time in in New York. Um, again, just because of technology now and 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 the availability of tape that we didn't have back then it makes it a lot easier for the scout. They're not gone nearly as much, but still gone a lot. I can imagine so. And a scout's job isn't only to evaluate how a player is on the field, but to determine what kind of person he is off the field as well. Thus, it is obviously imperative that scouts have a deep understanding of the world beyond the game as well as the game itself. What non-football-related career experiences would be beneficial to somebody looking for a job in a pro football scouting department? Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I can answer that because it, it's the, the guys that are successful have a football background. And, I, you know, I can speak in my case, I started playing football when I was eight years old. I stopped playing when I was 31. So I was involved in the game most of my life as far as a player. And I started working part time for the Buffalo Bills when I was 30 years old. So from the time I was eight until now, and I'm almost 67, I've been involved in the game. Uh, my degrees was in physical education. I started off in history, switched over to uh, physical education. But, you know, I, I think my background has always been football because I played the game so long. Most of the guys, not most guys, all the guys I hired played the game at some point. So, uh, and both of them played in college, and were, and were actually pretty good football players in college. So, in fact, if I, the more I think about it now, every everybody I hired in Chicago had a background playing the game while he was in college. So, again, their 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 background uh, as far as involvement with the game was strong. Uh, some of them got into coach uh, got into coaching after college, and then into scouting. Um, there's probably guys in the league that don't have, you know, playing background. When I say playing, I, I don't mean National Football League, but I mean, you know, playing at, at the college level. There are probably some people that didn't play in college. Um, I'd have to really sit down and think about who has or who hasn't. Uh, but I, I think it's it's not necessarily what your major is. It's what your background is in the game. I completely agree with that, Greg, but is there any other type of experience that uh, a potential scout could have outside of football that could be beneficial uh, to their scouting? Like, for example, uh, a lot of scouts have to evaluate uh, what a prospect posts on social media these days and what kind of other experience outside the football world would help them uh, get the best judge on a player's character by looking at their social media accounts? Well, that's not necessarily the scout who's doing that. They've got oh. people working in the office that is, you know, that that's their job. It could be an intern. It could be, um, you know, a, a scouting assistant within the department, you know, within the department. 
and not necessarily an evaluator. Scouts got too much to go do as it is, uh, then follow. You know, uh, an area scout might have 400 players, 500 players in his area that you know draw at all the different schools that he's going to. He can't spend all his time following their their Twitter account or their Facebook account because he won't get his work done. You know, that's a job for other people. Uh, within the department, not necessarily the scout, but you know what their background is. I, you know, I couldn't tell you because you know when I was a scouting director and a scout, Twitter didn't even exist, uh, at least not to the extent it is right now. Thank you very much for clarifying that, Greg. And you mentioned uh, your time with the Giants. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You were with the Giants for about 15, 16 years. And what was it like working Seven, for 17 years? Oh, 17 years. Thank you. And what was it like working with the Giants, particularly during the Bill Parcells era? Well, it, you know, it's a little different era then than it is now. Um, when I started with the Giants in late 1984, there wasn't, um, for lack of a better word, I guess, the, the involvement of the coaches wasn't as great then as it is now. In fact, it was almost non-existent then. You know, some coaches would go, go out and work some people. In fact, they did pro days as we know pro days now did not exist back then. If you wanted to work out a player, you called up the kid and you said, I'm going to be at your school tomorrow at 10 o'clock, meet me at 10 o'clock. And there's kids that were working out three days a week for scouts, four days a week for scouts, because different guys would come in. Well, in, in, in fairness to the kids, that got out of hand. because And there were some cases where you had kids working out twice a day. They might work out for one team in the morning and another team in the afternoon. And the schools, I think, got together then and decided, you know, we got to change the system because it was, it was tough on the players. And uh, to make it more fair for the players – uh, they started having these pro days. Now, it, it, when, when pro days, as we know them now, started first, teams would have maybe three during the course of the spring, and now they've narrowed it down to one. And you go to those uh, days, and, and, and they generally take place over about a four-week, four-and-a-half-week period. You try to get them all covered. You don't. It's impossible to get all of them covered. But the teams will share – there's a thing in the in the league called APT. That means Association of Professional Teams. And I think there was, when I stopped working full-time, I think there was 28 of the 32 teams were involved in the APT. And each team had six or seven schools that, he was, that they were responsible for, generally in the area, like the Bears might have been Northwestern, Illinois, Wisconsin, Notre Dame, things, Northern Illinois. So schools are easy to get to. They were responsible for at least having one guy there to get all the information, get all the measurable times. And when I say measurable times, tight, weight, uh, hand span, arm length, uh, the 40, the three cone, the 20-yard shuttle, vertical jump, long jump, bench press. And, they, and that information then would get sent out to all the different teams right away. Like by the next day, they had it just via email. And... Uh, then if, the, if, if, like my team, if there was, you know, six pro days in one day and my team couldn't be at, at all six of them, couldn't get them all covered, then uh, you'd get the APT times. And then if you wanted to see the workout too, you just asked, you'd get a, a tape. The schools always tape the workouts. So you'd get a tape of the workout from the school and the, and the, the 
take people, the video people at the schools do a great job because they turn around, they break it down into individual players. So you go through, you know, one player, let's say North Carolina State, so they do Bradley Chubb first, and then they you'd see his entire workout. Then uh, you'd see B.J. Hill's entire workout, et cetera, and you'd go through the uh, um, the whole tape would be put together that way, and it made it very easy then to, to see what each player did at the pro day. Yes, and as you also mentioned, you were also the scouting director for the Chicago Bears for about nine, ten years. And what are the big differences in being a scouting director compared to being a regional scout? And which role did you enjoy more personally? Well, the the term scouting director can be a little different from team to team. It's what is your job responsibility, and versus more than your title. Um, in my case with Chicago, I was more like a director of player personnel than a college scouting director. There's, there are college scouting directors that don't even live in the, in the uh, town of the team they work for, and they oversee the department, but in the chain of command, they may be third in, in the scouting department or fourth in the scouting department, where I was second under the general manager. And we had a pro department and a college department. They were totally separate departments. So anything having to do with college scouting, starting uh, with grading the players to budget to anything else, fell on me. And the same thing with Bobby DePaul, who ran the pro department uh, the time we were here. So, and we reported directly to uh, the general manager. Now, it, again, that was how our structure was set up. And when I was in New York, it was the exact same way. But other teams, you know, do it differently. You got a general manager, then you got a director of player personnel, and the director of player personnel is responsible for the pro department and the college department. Then you got a college director and a pro director, et cetera. So, it, it, again, it, it depends on each setup. But uh, the way I was brought up in the business between the Giants and, and the Bears, I liked it the way it was it was run. Um, it really put everything on me. I'd rather have it that way. That means if we screw up, it's on me. If we did a good job, it's on me. So, uh, you know, I liked having that responsibility. But on top of that, you know, I had a great crew of scouts here and, and really as a testament to that, almost all of them have grown within the business and got a lot better jobs now than they had when they originally with Chicago. In fact, I think there's only, well, there's two of my original scouts that are still with Chicago, but one of Mark Sadowski is the director of college scouting now. Uh, and the other is Jeff Shiver, who is uh, one of their over-the-top scouts. But Rex Hogan is the director of player personnel in Indianapolis. Uh, Marty Barrett went on to be director, or, uh, director of college scouting for Philly. Now he's the national scout Uh for the Los Angeles Rams. Teddy Monaco is the assistant director of college scouting for the Rams. So, I mean, we had, we had, a, we had a strong crew. Uh, Morocco Brown uh, is the director of college scouting for the uh, Indianapolis Colts. So just when you see what these guys have grown into as they went along their career, Chris Ballard is the general manager of the Colts. You can, you know, you, you see what type of people these were because they wouldn't have these jobs now if they weren't pretty good at what they did. As you can tell, folks, Greg Gabriel's scouting tree is very, very impressive. And as you tweeted earlier this week, Greg, as uh, the NFL draft uh, inches closer, 
um, teams after Easter Sunday will get together and start to finalize their draft boards. How much of a say do the scouts have in how a team's final draft board looks? Well, again, that's going to depend from team to team exactly how much say the scout has. And anything I've been involved with, and this goes back, you know, full-time to 1984 and I was part-time with Buffalo. I had, like, no involvement as far as my say um, because I was just a part-time guy. But with the Giants and with the Bears, the, the, the scouts had a lot to say. Their input was very, very important in the final grade. Uh, it, going through the process, you know, you have you have periodic meetings throughout the year, but when you get into your final meetings in April, putting that final board together, you know, that's when the, the input from the coaches starts coming into play. And up until that time, they didn't have grades on the players. So their, their involvement starts in late January and early February and goes up until the draft. You know, so they're looking at tape. They're going to pro days. They went to the combine, that type of situation. And so then they get a, a, a say. Um, and, depend, you know, to say if their say is stronger than the scouts, well, that you know, that could – change from team to team and it can change from coach to coach because you got to one thing you have to to learn is how good of an evaluator is your coach guy may be a great coach but not a real good evaluator and and, and it takes time to figure out if he is a strong or a weak evaluator some coaches don't want to do the evaluation part they want to coach and and just say to give them the players and once you figure that out, then, then if, if you've got a coach that's a very strong evaluator, then his input might be weighted more strongly in the final grade than, say, a guy that might not be the strongest evaluator but is a great coach as far as, you know, teaching the player to become a better player. So, uh, but again, and then the head coach is involved in this final say, the coordinators are involved obviously the scouts that were there and, and you discuss each player. Now you're not going over a thousand players in April. You're going over a couple hundred max. If that might only be a hundred, 125 because in most places now a draft board is small. You know, you're not, you're not putting just 254 players drafted. If, if you have, you know, each there's seven rounds of, of 32 and then you've got 32, uh, of the uh, compensatory picks, when you add that up, that comes out to 254 players, I think. But some, play, you know, some teams could have lost a player or two, you know, from a penalty or used it in a supplemental draft if there was one the year before, or whatever. But round figure, it's 250 to 255 every year, and you don't put that many players up on your board. When I started with the Giants, yeah, we did, but with, people don't do that anymore. You're putting up the players that you want. And, you know, there's certain players you want in the first-round area, certain players you want in the second round. And and those are the players that you have. We called it our hot list. Other teams may uh, use a different name, but that's the group of, of which you take your names that you're going to use on draft day to take, you know, to make your selections. Absolutely. That is a very important point you brought up, Greg, in that uh, team's draft board's uh the size isn't as big as it used to be. Heck, as I kind of remember, I believe the Seahawks, it was a couple years ago, only had like 70 players on their board. Well, I think the smallest we had when I was in Chicago was probably about 75 or 80. Um, 
and that's because we didn't have first and second round picks. So the board started, and we, and we weren't getting them. So, you know, we didn't have to start <laughs> off with those guys. So why worry about them? Don't even put them on the board. Uh, you, you just, you know, you do your work, you do your research, and, and you figure out there's guys that you're, you're honing in on. They say, you know, I, I want this guy around the third round. And you do your research, figure out what the general consensus is of that player around the league. Now, you're not going to be right 100% of the time. There's going to be a guy that you like and you say, I want to take this guy in the third round, and he goes in the second round or the first round to somebody else because they, they value the guy better, which is fine. Uh, there's also it's going to be the other way. There's going to be a guy that you took in the third round that other teams might have had as a fifth round pick, and 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 that goes on actually throughout the league. No two draft boards are the same. Part of it has to do with need. Part of it has to do with scheme. You know, when when I was working for the Bears and Lovey Smith was the uh, uh, head coach we weren't going to have 340-pound nose tackles on the draft board because we weren't going to draft them. And no matter, even if the guy had a first-round grade and it was the seventh round, you weren't going to take the guy because he wasn't a fit in the scheme. So you only, you're going to have guys on your board that you want to have and you want to have them because they can play within the scheme that you're playing. You know, you can't be taking, you know, in the old days you used to take so-called best player available. Well, you're not going to take a player that just can't play what you're trying to do. And it's stupid to try to force that kind of player on the coach because it's just not going to work. It most definitely isn't. And during these next five weeks, there will be a lot of fabrications leaked out of NFL front offices. What are some tips you have for fans on how to separate the smoke from the fire from now until April 26th? Don't believe a word you hear. I will t- it's just because it's, you know, I, I I tweeted out something this morning, you know, about um, I think Matt Miller was saying, you know, he had a blow up a, a mock draft he just did because of the trade the Giants made with Jason Pierre-Paul. And I tweeted back to, to Matt. I said, that's why I don't do mock drafts, uh, because it's just an exercise in futility. Um, most of the stuff that people put out is false stuff that, I, you know, that, they say, oh, a source told me this, a source told me that. Never turns out to be true. And you can look at, at last year as a perfect example. Who had the Bears trading up from three to two to take a quarterback besides nobody? And and that's the surprises that happen. Now, this year, everybody's saying, okay, the way things have played out in free agency and with some of these trades that have gone on, in the last few weeks, everybody's saying, well, okay, there's going to be four quarterbacks going. It's a lock. Four quarterbacks are going to go in the top six or seven. Okay, that's the anticipation, and that's what the thought is. I doubt it will happen and because there's always something that changes what that original perception is, uh, be it a trade, somebody trading into a certain position, uh, somebody trading, wanting to trade out uh, because of, of what's being offered to them. So you just got to set up your board and just figure, okay, these guys we think are going to be there. These guys are going to get selected in front of us. If one of the guys that you thought was going to be selected starts to fall, then you, you know, you're going to talk to him before you, you know, take your, you're, you're going to talk about him and uh, before you take your pick. But in, in all the time I worked in the league, all that stuff that was out there, I just never, 
believed a word of it. I've always said, and I have said it in, in, in front of the media when I worked with the Bears and stuff, I said the first thing I have to do after the draft is go to confession because all the lies I've told. And that's, you know, when the, the stuff you put out is false information because you want people thinking certain things that have nothing to do with what you're really thinking. And so, um, like I say, I don't believe anything I hear because I know 90% of it isn't true. I will definitely take that advice to heart, Greg, and I hope our listeners will as well. And you seem adamant that you doubt that four quarterbacks will go in the top five, six, or seven picks. And you've also been stressing on Twitter for some time that this quarterback class, which has been hyped up for about over a year, if not two, you think this class is overrated. Why do you think that is the case? Oh, big time. It, it's, I, I don't think there's a... The, I don't know who the best quarterback is in this class because I think if you talk, if you put five different scouting department heads in a room and said, who's your best quarterback? You're going to get probably three different answers with those five guys. So, uh, and, and that, that can be common, you know, with any player, there's always going to be difference of opinion, uh, you know, on players, but you just look at their, how they played in college, how they play the game, their uh, mechanics, uh, their stats, the turnover ratio, uh, what they did in in certain situations, what they did in first down, what they did on second down, what they did in third down, what they did when they got in the red zone. You put all that stuff together, this class isn't that good at the quarterback. You know, they don't match up against the top three last year in Trubisky, uh, Mahomes, and uh, Watson. It's just they're just not their production wasn't nearly as good, and I, I you know I, I can find faults in all of these guys. You know, there's a lot of people who love Josh Allen because of the the big arm that he has. Well, Kyle Bowler had a big arm like that back in the year that we drafted uh, uh, Rex Grossman. Rex was the fourth quarterback taken in that draft, uh, and Bowler was the third quarterback. But people fell in love with him because. At his pro day, he got on one knee and threw the ball 75 yards in the air uh, with a tight spiral. Well, yeah, but that doesn't win games for you. You know, you got to have more than a strong arm. You got to have instincts. You got to be able to read defenses. You got to have anticipation. You got to be able to process. You got to make big plays when big plays are needed. You got to be a strong leader. There's a lot to do with a, a guy becoming a good quarterback in the NFL. And a lot of it has to do with just the intangibles. But to go back to Josh Allen, you look at his numbers over two years. The last two years, he's completed 56% of his passes. There isn't a quarterback in the league that had numbers like that that has been successful. There isn't one drafted in the last 12 years that has had a completion percentage that poor that has had any success in the NFL. So you're going to tell me he's going to be the first? Tony, it's not going to happen. Very, very good points indeed, Greg. And I understand you don't like uh, mock drafts, and I don't blame you. Um, you describe them as an exercise in futility. I describe them as an exercise in the hypothetical, and there are a lot of hypotheticals at the top of this draft, uh, even more so in recent years, given the amount of quarterbacks that could uh, go off the board uh, within the top five to seven they, picks. They very well could, and, and, and they might. All I'm saying, I mean, when you look at it, you look at the teams that have a need, and you say they got to take a quarterback, and I understand why. It's a quarterback-driven league, and if you don't have one, you got to find a way to get one. 
But at the same time, when you look at the, the theory of, of drafting, the theory of drafting is to take the best player or the best player at, at, at need positions. And so now could you hypothetically push those quarterbacks up on your board because you have a strong need at the position? Yeah, that can happen, and that can also lead to getting guys fired. I, if you look at the history of my tweets. I also said this class reminds me of the 2011 class. And in 2011, I think four quarterbacks went in the top 12 or something like that. And only one turned out to be a pro, and that was the first guy drafted, Cam Newton. You know how the rest already busted. There's one left in the league, and he's been, I think, on four teams already, and he's just a backup. And, you know, so that I, I can see similar things happening to this class. Do I see all four busting? No. I, I, you know, but I can see two out of the four not living up to the expectations of where they were drafted. And the fact is this. You take a quarterback in the top seven or top eight, and he fails, somebody's getting fired. It's, it's, it, you know, it's going to happen. And it's just the way it is because of the expectations that have been built up to take that guy. And if he doesn't turn out to be a player or a so-called franchise quarterback, then somebody's got to pay the price, and that's either going to be the head coach or the general manager. Uh, absolutely. And before we let you go here, Greg, uh, let's uh, do like one hypothetical scenario. Just want to get your opinion. Like suppose you're a team like the Broncos picking at five, and the quarterback left is Baker Mayfield, but Quentin Nelson remains on the board as well. Would you fault them for taking Quentin Nelson instead? Um, I, you know, that's a hard thing to answer. And the reason is, what grade do they have on Quentin Nelson? And what grade do they have on Baker Mayfield? And, you know, and unless you're sitting in their room and you know the answer to that, then it, you know, it, it can be a difficult thing to answer um i like mayfield i think if there's any guy any quarterback in this class has got a chance of su uh, success it's him um i don't like that he's six foot a half inch uh, but there have been quarterbacks who have had success that have been that short but more of them fail than succeed but when you look at his overall game i think you know he's got a chance um i like josh rosen i like his mechanics uh, and what he can do, but at the same time, I don't like his intangibles. I don't think he's a leader. I think he'd be a difficult guy to coach. Uh, I don't always get along with people. He's a very, very intelligent pe person, and when he walks in the room, he'll let you know he's the smartest guy in the room. That's not going to sit well. When you have that type of personality and, and you walk into a veteran locker room with that type of attitude, it's not going to sit well with the veterans. They'll put the guy in, in, uh, in his place right away, but at the same time, how does that guy respond? To me, I've, I've kind of compared him to a Jay Cutler type. Jay had the same type of personality, and they got skills that are similar. You know, if, if Jay had the intangibles to match his physical talent, he might have been one of the best quarterbacks ever, but he didn't. You know, the, 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 two, the two sides fought with each other, and that – prevented him from being the quarterback that he can be. I can see the same thing happen with Josh Rosen. Greg Gabriel, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciated having you on, and we hope to have you back on the show sometime in the future. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That concludes our 100th episode special here on Sports Crunch with D. Crom.
Starting next week, our Dash to the Draft series kicks into high gear as we enter the final month before the 2018 NFL Draft, so stay tuned. Thanks to each and every one of you for tuning in each week, and we hope you continue to do so for the next 100 episodes and beyond. Take care, everyone, and until next time, stay awesome.